We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. Customer centricity is essential in the world of subscriptions. To succeed, you have to understand who your most valuable customers are and invest your resources in those relationships. But measuring the value of each customer over an extended period of time and understanding which metrics matter most can be tricky. Peter Fader, the Francis and Peiyuan Chia Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, is perhaps the leading expert in the world on how to assess the value of a business by understanding the value of the customer over the entire relationship with an organization, from source to completion. Pete has literally written the book on customer centricity. Well, actually two books, Customer Centricity, Focus on the Right Customers for Strategic Advantage, and The Customer Centricity Playbook, which he co-authored with Sarah Toms. In this episode, we discuss customer centricity, customer lifetime value, and how to use available public data to evaluate a company, using D2C prescription glasses retailer Warby Parker as an example. We also talk about why current accounting standards don't always tell the full story and how this needs to change. Welcome to the show, Pete. Oh, Robbie, it's always a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> so you were a math major at MIT, but you've ended up a marketing professor. What happened? I keep asking myself that. Like, what? It's not like anyone wakes up one morning and says, Mommy, I want to be a marketing professor. It was a gradual brainwashing. <laughs> there was this one marketing professor at MIT. She's now at the University of Texas at Austin, Lee McAllister. And she came up to me during my senior year and said, all that math stuff, all that statistics and numbers and patterns that you like, you ought to go into marketing. And I looked at her and said, you ought to get your head checked. Not intuitive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Saying, you know, I'm a math guy. I'm not going to marketing. It's the last thing I would think about. This was 1983. And she painted a picture of what marketing would become. Uh, she kind of casually called it, we are building the electron microscope of the customer. And we're going to know so much about the customer, who they are, what they do, what they're going to do next. And all of that math stuff is really going to help us not only understand the customer better, but leverage it and make better decisions and help companies just spend their money more effectively and get more for it. And I didn't quite believe her, but she was very persuasive. And so I followed along. And again, here we are 40 years later. And Boy, oh boy, was she right. And I've right place, right time for myself. And I've been so happy to be swept along by that tide of everything that marketing has become and is still becoming. Yeah, marketing is really quantitative these days. It certainly should be. That's not to say it shouldn't be qualitative either. It's not to say that creativity and the interplay of creativity, qualitative, quantitative, and just even instinct should be part of it, but no one of these things should come at the expense of the others. Yeah. And the specific space in marketing where you work is very much like what your mentor predicted 40 years ago in terms of 
being quite quantitative and taking a very close look at customer behavior. I think you're probably the world leader in studying customer centricity. Can you define what it means for you when you say an organization is customer centric? Yeah. And I don't know if I'm the leader or not, but I certainly enjoy messing around and saying a lot about that. One of the mistakes I made is that expression, customer centricity, means so many different things to different people. Sometimes it means things that are actually polar opposite to each other. And so actually, honestly, it was a bad choice of words, although it was the right overall concept to go after. Here's my take on it. There's a lot of companies that claim to be customer-centric by saying, the customer is at the center of everything we do. That's not what I'm talking about. And when companies say that, I tend not to believe them anyway. For me, it's more about which customer should we be centered around? See, as we built that electron microscope of the customer, one of the big shocking things that we found, it's kind of trite by now, but it was shocking at the time, is that customers are wildly different from each other. There is no customer. There's no the customer. We can't paint a picture of what the customer wants, and we can't develop products for the customer. Which customers are we talking about? And so the idea of customer centricity is that they're wildly different from each other. Instead of trying to be everybody's best friend, you got to pick and choose. You got to figure out who are the customers that you're going to spend disproportionate resources on. And once you figure that out, how are you going to allocate those resources? How are you going to listen to them, anticipate their needs, uh, surround them with a variety of products and services, many of which you don't even make any money on to kind of deepen that relationship to build that forever transaction, <laughs> to quote someone I deeply respect. And so that's what customer centricity is. It's, it's really figuring out the difference across the customers and how to leverage them most effectively. It's interesting. Like you, I have built my career around a highly charged term, in my case, membership, that means a lot of different things to different people. And what I appreciate about the way that you refined your definition just now is that it's really not just about this kind of general customer first, but it's more about saying, we're going to analyze our customer base first and then make decisions based on that analysis. So it's a different way, I think, of thinking about customer-centric. It's starting with your ideal member, your ideal customer, and then saying, what products and services should we offer to them? How should we allocate resources to optimize relationships with them. Well, first of all, is that accurate? Did I capture it? You did really well. In fact, a really nice way to think about the contrast between what we're talking about, customer centricity, and the more traditional way of doing business, product centricity, was summarized a wonderful book called Designing the Customer-Centric Organization by a gentleman named Jay Galbraith. And he talks about all these contrasts. And one of them is, for a traditional product-centric firm, it's all about divergent thinking. We got this product expertise. What else can we do with it? What new products can we spin off of it? What new segments or geographies can we take our product expertise to? You know, where can we spread the product out to? That's the way most companies think. It's the way most companies continue to think today. So even when they're talking about being customer-centric, they're not. They're just saying, which customers can we find to buy our product? Customer centricity, when we really mean it the right way, is about converging thinking. So we got these really valuable customers here. How do we converge all of our thinking and resources on them? So again, what products and services can we bring to them? What other companies should we partner with? How else can we make their life better in order to lock them in and get more value from them 
even if some of the stuff we're bringing to them is providing no value at all. But if we can create that, that, that true bona fide relationship as opposed to hostage taking, as a lot of companies truly think about it, that's where the big payoff occurs. And you can't do that with everybody. Yeah, it would be nice. You got to pick and choose. What do you mean by hostage taking? Is that when you say when you lock somebody into a subscription? Is that hostage taking? Yeah, there's too many companies out there that delude themselves into thinking that they have loyalty, that they have real relationships with customers, that they have true membership. But it's just because the switching costs are so high that the customers can't leave. And those switching costs might not be purely financial, but there'd be a variety of reasons, some psychological, some procedural why, you know what? It's just not worth my leaving. And we can think of lots of companies, very often companies in the telecommunications space, where the customers aren't getting their logo tattooed on their body parts. Let's face it. They're there because it's just a hassle to leave. That's not loyalty. Okay. That's not a true relationship. And unfortunately, these companies will kind of convince themselves that they are because look how long they've been with us. Yeah. Don't confuse inertia with loyalty. That's exactly right. And so let's really clarify the difference. And that's my job is to use very careful statistical models to sort that out and figure out who are the customers who are choosing to be here versus who are the ones who they don't necessarily hate us, but they don't necessarily love us. And if we could really understand those differences and then kind of double down on the right kinds of customers, that's the best path to growth. So- You talked about these models that you've developed, these very precise models. What are some of the metrics that go into your models that a customer-centric business should be tracking and, and using to make decisions? Well, so let's first clarify what we mean by the models, because you kind of give it a black box flavor. There'd really be kind of four main models we're talking about, four main behaviors that we want to understand and project and then use for these customer-centric purposes. So it's all about acquisition, retention, repeat purchase, and spend. And if you think about it, that's where all of our revenue comes from. So if we can project how many customers are going to acquire, how long are they going to stay, how often they're going to interact with us, and how much money we'll make or how much value we'll get when they do so. So those are going to be the four main models. Now, how we implement them is going to differ from one setting to another. Sure. In some settings, we might have some other models. In some settings, we might not have all of the four. Sure, there, there, there'll be some differences there. But those are the four main behaviors. And so naturally, we're going to want to have metrics that let us understand and then ultimately project each of those things. So, you know, how many customers have we acquired each and every quarter or year or whatever? That's a pretty obvious one. Yet, ironically, most companies don't disclose it. Same thing with retention. A lot of companies will report different kinds of retention rates. It makes more sense for certain kinds of companies than others. Some companies on the repeat purchase side will say how many orders were placed by our active customers. And of course, spend, average revenue per user. So a lot of these metrics aren't really that radical. These are metrics that companies will talk about with some frequency. But taking it to a whole nother step and sharing these things with external stakeholders and being held accountable for these metrics and their implications, that's what we're talking about. So I have two questions to follow up on that that kind of go in different directions. The first question is, do the metrics and the models differ if you're looking at a business as an operator 
versus if you're looking as an investor. I know you've spent time on both sides, working with operators and also working to help investors investigate corporate evaluations. That's the first question. Sure. So the metrics that I just mentioned are going to be meaningful to both. But internally, if this is our business, we'll go beyond just those basic counting metrics and start to use some of the projections. And that's where we get to things like customer lifetime value. So can we project how long you're going to stay, what you're going to do over that horizon, how much you're going to spend? Ultimately, that's going to be more informative and it's going to help us make better decisions in terms of what we're going to do and how well did we do it. So something like lifetime value, which really is just kind of a composite of some of those metrics, we should be using that internally. We should be focusing on these forward-looking projections. I'm not sure that we'd want to share those externally because they are forecasts, they are fallible. And the last thing we want to do is to put forecasts out there and have investors say, wait a minute, you promised me that the lifetime value is going to be X dollars and it turned out to be Y. Um, So there might be some distinctions between what we use internally versus what we disclose externally, but they should be consistent with each other. And they should ultimately tell a similar story just with more detail and nuance if it's internal. Yeah. Some of those predictive metrics and then also the underlying metrics. That's how I think about it. For example, metrics around engagement, usage, by cohort. Those are things that I think are really helpful to the operators so that they can get in there and fix something when it's broken. That's right. And of course, they'd be helpful to the investors too. But you can understand why a company doesn't want to disclose more than they have to disclose We're pleased when they do. It actually means a lot to us. And we do hope that the set of required disclosures will expand over time, that there's some interesting things happening on that front, which we might get into. But it's understandable why there'd be a difference between internal and external. But again, they shouldn't be inconsistent with each other. Yeah. So I promised a second part to the question, and I think it's right where you are going, which is, let's talk about disclosure. And You and your colleague, Dan McCarthy, who was a guest on an earlier episode of the podcast, have been proponents of greater disclosure, clarity, consistency, and metrics from public disclosures from companies. And I'm curious what you think organizations should be disclosing and what would give them an incentive to make those disclosures. I love it. I love it. So first of all, just back up a second and give just the biggest shout out to Dan McCarthy, because I wasn't thinking about- We love Dan McCarthy. We do, (laughs) and I've benefited from his wisdom and experience more than anyone on the planet. You know, he's building all of these models of customer acquisition, retention, repeat purchase and span. That's something I've been doing for decades. And usually working directly with companies, working directly with all of their rich transaction log data. But it wasn't until meeting Dan back in 2014, I guess it was, Dan, after graduating from Wharton as an undergraduate, went to work for a hedge fund and then came back to Wharton to get his PhD in statistics, not just marketing, statistics. He's a real smart numbers and data guy. And I said, hey, Dan, wouldn't it be great if we could take some of these models and be able to estimate them and use them when we're working with more aggregated data, the kinds of numbers that companies do or might put out there? And that actually became the basis of his dissertation. That became the basis of our second startup, Theta, which we might have might talk about. So I've been learning so much from him. As marketers, it's kind of funny because we were saying earlier on, first, I was saying, I don't want to be a marketer. 
So then as I became a marketing professor and you get kind of arrogant and full of yourself and a lot of marketing professors, you know, including myself to some extent, would go to the finance people and say, hey, finance people, you're doing it all wrong. You should be looking at all this customer data instead. That's not the way to make friends and win respect. So, so part <laughs> of the education from Dan was the only way we're going to win this game is to play by the rules that finance has set up and find ways to get our models, our metrics, our language to fit in with theirs. This is so important. And it's often the marketers in my world that want to launch subscriptions or that want to enjoy membership economy principles in their businesses. And they have to be able to communicate that to the finance team. It's one of the biggest hurdles that they often face. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And no one's done it better than Dan. And in fact, in the subscription setting in particular, So we found a way to kind of thread that needle pretty effectively to come up with metrics and models and just, again, the verbiage around them that absolutely does full respect to all of the marketing thinking and all the work that my colleagues in my field have done for many, many decades. But to make it appealing to the finance people, to get them to want to read our papers, to want to really dive into the detail and explore some of the models for their own purposes. And it's been just an amazing ride in that regard. And of course, Besides winning over finance is a great thing by itself. As you said, it ends up giving more respect, more credibility, more resources, just more wind beneath the wings for the marketers as well when we can create a bona fide partnership. Yeah. So what are the metrics that you and Dan use? I know you have this concept, customer-based corporate valuation on the investor side. What are the metrics that companies should be disclosing if they want investors to truly understand how the business works. Once again, Robbie, I'm going to give you a long-winded answer. And so I want people to know where this is coming from. So as part of Dan's dissertation work, he looked at a lot of different metrics that companies have disclosed. And so we're not necessarily inventing anything new here. We're just looking at what is already out there in terms of occasional or regular disclosures by different companies. That's great. And then we're going to do the math to basically say which combinations of those metrics will let us best replicate the same models that we would build if I had the transaction log data. And this is literally what we did. We had data from an actual company and we ran the models on the rich transaction by transaction data. And then we said, which combination of aggregated metrics let us come as close to that as possible? And we found that not all metrics are created equal and certain combinations of them were quite amazing at their ability to let us do this. So let me answer the question. So this is really less a matter of kind of taste and judgment, and it really is a matter of math and statistics. And what we found first on the basis of repeat purchasing, it's kind of obvious in hindsight, I think, but again, not a lot of companies necessarily have paid heed to it. You tell me the number of active users. Let's keep it simple. The number of customers who have made a transaction with us every quarter or year or whatever period we're talking about. So just give me some notion of breadth. How many customers have done something, which again, might be transactions in a content setting. It might be how many posted content or at least visited the website. So how many active users have we had each period of time? And then we want a depth metric that complements it. Among those active users, how much activity did they do? So what's the average number of purchases by those active users or the average number of visits to the website or postings or whatever else? So give me one metric that reflects depth, one metric that reflects breadth, and that's going to tell me about the overall behavior of the existing users. 
obviously you got to give me a metric that reflects how many customers we've acquired. And then fourth would be a metric that reflects the value generated by those activities, which again, usually be some notion of spend. So either what's the average spend per user over the period as a whole, or ideally, what's the average spend per transaction, or maybe both. So again, it comes back to those four behaviors, acquisition, retention, repeat purchase, spend. And as long as we have a metric that reflects each of those things, perhaps even in an indirect way, we're looking good. And it's remarkable to see how many companies, either by design or coincidence, just happen to reveal the just right set of metrics. But even then, they're still the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, it's fun to look at your research. You guys publish periodically deep dives on certain companies, some in the subscription world and some while they don't have a contract with the customer, a formal relationship with the customer, they are really touting the loyalty and the habits that they're forming as a key part of their value. And one of those companies that you recently took a hard look at was Warby Parker, the uh, eyeglasses direct retailer. They, they have stores and they sell online. In Leading up to their IPO, they filed an S1 and you and Dan kind of went through that with a fine tooth comb. Yes, indeed, we did. Sure. <laughs> and again, first, let's give Warby just a ton of credit for putting a, a good set of metrics out there. We wait with bated breath every time a company announces its IPO because we want to dive into the S1 filing and see what's there. And it's like opening up a big box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And in the Warby case, it was quite good. And so they gave us easily enough metrics for us to be able to piece together the different behaviors that I mentioned and piece together an overall picture of the value of the customers and therefore the value of the company. It was a pretty good picture. I'm happy to say that the unit economics of the customers is quite healthy, as is the valuation of the firm. And it doesn't always happen that way. Some companies come in as pretty healthy. Others are surprisingly not. And usually, eventually, the market picks up on it. We're just kind of providing kind of a almost a sneak preview of how markets will shake out. It's also a sneak preview, I think, for companies that are in the subscription space, in the recurring revenue or the relationship, membership economy space. That's how investors are increasingly going to be looking at their filings. So they need to be really careful. I think one really interesting example, Warby Parker, they had a lot of customer data, which was great. One of the things that was interesting, you talked about unit economics. A key part of any unit economics is the cost of acquisition or CAC. Can you share a little bit about how they looked at CAC and how you would think about the right way to look at CAC and what that might mean for other companies that are putting numbers out into the public? Absolutely. It's so important you raise this point, not only on acquisition costs, but all of the costs associated with customers. So ongoing retention and development costs as well. And while we're really refining and popularizing the science of projecting all the revenue parts, as I've already discussed, the way we figure out the cost parts is still kind of a wild west. The, and I'm not criticizing the discipline of accounting, but accounting for customers at a granular level, and not only granular one by one level, but a granular different kinds of behavioral level, uh, just hasn't really caught up and it needs to. And so there are no really formal definitions out there about how you calculate CAC. The most natural way to do it, if we could, would be to say, okay, what was the total spend that on acquiring customers and how many customers did we acquire and divide the first one by the second one and there you go. 
Now, there's a couple of problems. Number one, how do we figure out exactly how much money was spent specifically for acquisition? So, for instance, you mentioned like Warby Parker opening stores. So how much of opening a store should be counted as acquisition cost versus cost of ongoing relationship management? So these things can get pretty tricky. And so what Warby did in their filing, again, I'm not saying they did anything wrong. Look, I'm pleased they put so many good numbers out there. But they took their overall spend and divided by total active customers, not just customers acquired. And so when you look at the CAC numbers that they initially reported, they looked really good, but they were actually artificially low because they were being spread over a broader base. Now, again, because they put so many good metrics out there, we were able to piece Humpty Dumpty back together and say you know, what we think the actual CAC was, because we could try to sort out the number of truly acquired customers from active customers. So we don't have to just run with the data they have. It's still informative, but we'll do the right kind of fine tuning to it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this is, I guess, one of the challenges that faces companies. If you put the data out there that is most useful for understanding how they're doing, first of all, run the risk of people with either different opinions or recognizing your errors. And like you said, it's like getting a box of chocolates. You're kind of putting out your valuables for everybody to see and judge, which companies don't always like to do. That is true. Another one relating to metrics and to communication of key data points. I know Twitter recently settled an interesting lawsuit about metrics, and you were set to be an expert witness in that case for Twitter. Can you share what happened there? Yes. And it's actually a wonderful story because listeners might get the impression that the more metrics, the better. If it's measuring something about customers, then it should be disclosed. And that's not what I'm saying. I've described a bunch of metrics, how many active users and all that sort of stuff. But that doesn't mean that more is necessarily better. It doesn't mean that companies should disclose more. So in this particular case, Twitter would casually talk about some active user type metrics, a number of them that some of your listeners might be familiar with. Dow and Mao, daily active users and monthly active users. My view is if you put a single active user metric out there, that's good enough. But there's a lot of people out there who like to talk about the Dow-Mao ratio. What's the percent of daily active users relative monthly active users. And for years and years, even long before this particular lawsuit, I've pointed out, and it's a technical thing, I don't want to get into details, but it's not a good metric. And when companies do disclose on a regular basis, I don't want to say it's misleading, but it's just nothing. And Twitter was sued for not disclosing the Dow-Mao ratio on a regular basis. And so it was my job to basically say they shouldn't be disclosing. It's not like they were hiding it. They were looking at a lot of different metrics. And this was just one that they occasionally peeked at, but they didn't find much use in it. So it's kind of a cautionary tale that not all metrics are created equal and you need to pick and choose carefully. And just because other people are using a certain kind of metric doesn't mean that you should too. You need to think about your business. And and to, to double down on this particular case, if you think about a Twitter versus a Facebook, for Facebook, they're just showing you ads and they're getting paid every time an ad comes across your Facebook timeline or whatever. But that's not how it works with Twitter. With Twitter, the advertiser doesn't pay until someone actually engages with the ad, clicks on and does something. So there's merely showing ads, merely just knowing how many eyeballs showed up on Twitter in a given day. That's not how they're making their money. So they shouldn't be disclosing metrics about it. So you got to think very carefully about what is your business model 
And one of the metrics that really support the relevant revenue driving parts of it, instead of just doing something because your competitor down the street does it. It's a really interesting one to me, and I'm glad they were able to settle without having it go to court because just because you don't present every metric does not mean that that metric is going to tell a different story about the business. And in many cases, and I think this is what you're getting to, the metrics that they weren't sharing would have told the same story, wouldn't have added to the understanding of the story of how the company is doing. Actually, I'd go further than that. It's not so much they tell the same story. They might actually tell a confusing story. They might actually, in a weird way, disclosing those metrics could have misled the investors as opposed to not doing so, because it is just kind of a meaningless mishmash. And so it could actually create a false impression. So it, it's, it's really important. And again, we've done the math. We've really looked very, very carefully to understand which metrics and which combination of metrics will be the right indications, depending on the business model. And I think it's important for companies to walk before they run, before even think about disclosing anything else, focus on the core ones, have the capabilities to measure them properly, report them properly, make the right inferences from them, and then maybe, maybe, maybe start to go another step and expand on that set, but do so cautiously. As I'm listening to you, one of the thoughts that's coming into my mind, and this kind of goes back to our discussion about the relationship between marketing and finance, that this whole area would be a very rich area for the head of marketing to be discussing with their head of finance to say, let's look at these metrics and let's put together the story. How can we best tell our story and how can we best communicate both externally and frankly, internally, how our business is doing and to identify areas for, certainly on the internal side, for improvement, what should be in our dashboard. That would be, I think, a great place for discussion and collaboration between the two. Absolutely. But you know what the problem is, Robbie? Of course, I agree with you. From your mouth to the CEO's ears. But the problem is very often these metrics fall in the crack between the CMO and the CFO. But the CMO, and just to, to be a little kind of stereotypy about it, I know that it's wrong, but the CMO is often just so obsessed with the brand that a lot of these metrics are just a little bit too wonky for them to worry about. And the CFO is obsessed with just the very traditional metrics required by the accounting standards boards. And these other things are saying, we're not going there. If we don't have to report it, we're not going to. Why should we? And what we're finding today is that we're finding more enlightened CMOs and CFOs who see the value in these metrics for both internal and external purposes. And we've actually been talking to some big publicly traded companies who have approached us to say, what metrics should we disclose to paint the best possible picture for us? Again, we don't want to give everything away. We're not going to post things on like forward-looking lifetime value, but which simple counting metrics would help a savvy investor tell the right story about our firm that they might not otherwise be able to tell. That's the conversation I want to have. And I want to see more and more companies doing that to the point where the accounting standards boards eventually have to say, okay, okay, we're going to set yeah. formal guidelines and regulations about these things. It's not going to happen for years, but I bet it is going to happen. So what I hear you saying is that historically, marketing and finance had such different ways of looking at the world that they often didn't connect. But increasingly, as marketers are becoming more analytical, more quantitative as their jobs are changing and becoming more numbers-based, their goals are aligning more closely with those finance. And CFOs are realizing that they might have a very good ally 
in their CMO and in accessing the data that the CMO is tracking. That's it. Well said. And so from there, I think what follows is the best companies, the ones that are doing the best at driving customer lifetime value are going to be the ones most likely that are happy to share their numbers because they're doing it right and because they understand how to communicate that story. And hopefully over time, that will lead to more and more companies following their lead and potentially even to a change in standards. I do agree in that I'm going to flip it around. The companies that are willing to put the metrics out there are proud of them. They got nothing to hide. That doesn't mean that all companies that are doing the customer-centric thing very well are disclosing. Most of them aren't. Most of them, even if they're following all the acquisition, retention, repeat purchase spending, even they're doing it superbly well, and many CFOs are still saying, nah-uh-uh, we're still not putting that stuff out there. Let's keep that internal. That's our secret sauce. So most companies are not going to disclose this stuff until someone forces them to do it. And that's why I spent a lot of time, I mentioned them several times now, talking about the accounting standards boards or the SEC. I want those kinds of organizations to step in and kind of force this to happen so that the companies have no choice but to put these metrics out there. Is that likely to happen? What will drive that to happen? So we've had a lot of conversations with both CFOs and investors and leading Wall Street analysts and just valuation experts. And a lot of them are saying it's years and years away. There's going to have to be some kind of great big crisis that arises from the disclosure or failure to disclose some of these metrics. There's going to have to be some company that you know goes bankrupt because of something that happens along these lines, or a number of companies, just such an overwhelming number of lawsuits. I hate to get all technical with you, but the shit's going to have to hit the fan before <laughs> these accounting standards boards are going to step in and say, whoa, wait a minute, they're not going to do it just, huh, that's a good idea. Yeah, let's do that. They got enough on their plate already. So they're only going to do it when there's a problem to be solved. And again, just seeing some of these lawsuits, you have mentioned the Twitter one, there have been a number of lawsuits around the presence or absence of customer metrics, but most of them, like you're probably not aware of any of them. And so as they become more prominent, I think at some point, the grownups are going to have to step in and really say, we got to avoid this from happening. So it's years away, and I don't even know what the precipitating event will be, but just like these metrics reflect long run, we're in it for the long run, and it's the right thing to do. And we'll find more and more companies doing it voluntarily. We'll take a lot of these baby steps before some kind of cataclysmic event happens. Really interesting. I'm sure we'll be following that closely. I wanted to wrap up with a speed round. Are you up for that? Okay. Bring it on. <laughs> first subscription you ever had? The first subscription I remember would be getting cable TV as a kid. And the whole idea of like paying for television? Ew! <laughs> um, so it was very resonant because it went so far against the grain of everything that we believed in. But obviously, tremendous impact. Were you involved in that decision or was that a decision your parents made? I remember so well. I was, like I said, a teenager at the time. So it was a parental decision, but I was fascinated by it. And before I knew I'd become do this for a living, just like, how would all that work? And, you know, what do we get for the money and all that sort of thing? So I was very interested in it. And continue to be. I've done a lot of work in the media space. Maybe it's a result of that traumatic experience as a kid, pushing other media firms towards subscription businesses across the board, music and movies and so on. And look at how the content world has changed. 
it's been just amazing. And we ain't seen nothing yet. It's, it's still changing a lot. What's your favorite subscription today that you currently subscribe to? So the favorite subscriptions would be the ones that you don't question. The ones that you're doing it for the right reasons. Again, if you're not being held hostage, I'm looking at the bill every month and saying, ugh. And so I guess the one that just kind of brings me the greatest joy would probably be Spotify. And it goes back to the reason I just said, because I've always wanted that business model for the music industry. I invented Spotify before Spotify was founded. Well, I didn't really, but the idea of that streaming subscription, get as much as you want. I don't even know what I pay for. It's worth every penny. So it's one that I just kind of celebrate as a sea change in an industry that sorely needed it. And besides, I love that company and get great use of the service. Yeah, that's always a great indicator that your subscription is good when your customers don't know how much they're paying and say, I don't really care. Exactly. And then last one, your business school professor, what's one business school class that every business person should take or should have taken other than, of course, your classes? Well, most people probably shouldn't take mine. Well, I mean, let's be honest, negotiations. <laughs> it's actually wonderful to see how, how those courses have become just maybe the most popular elective at, at any school. I think learning how to play that game, even if it has absolutely nothing to do with the kinds of stuff that I teach and talk about, but I admire those skills so much and wish I was better at them. Yeah. As the mom of three young adults, none of whom are in business school, I would love for all of them to take that class. Or maybe you don't want them to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny. They're actually pretty good at negotiating with mom and dad. But when it comes to kind of negotiation in the broader world, knowing their value, understanding the considerations of the other side, I think those are skills that forget business. Those are skills that everybody should have. Life skills, no doubt. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. And as always, delightful and a real pleasure to talk to you. Robbie, I always enjoy doing so. And I really appreciate all the things you're doing to take some of these concepts and methods and technical stuff that I do and making it accessible and and making it important and, and getting companies to really understand it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pete. That was Peter Fader, Francis and Pei Yuan Chia, Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and customer centricity expert. To learn more about Pete and his work on customer centricity, go to petefader.com or thetaclv.com. And check out his books, Customer Centricity, Focus on the Right Customers for Strategic Advantage and The Customer Centricity Playbook, available online or at your local bookstore. And for more about my work with subscription and membership models, go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com. You've been listening to the Subscription Stories Podcast. This is Robbie Kelman Baxter. If you love the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Mention this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews and we want your feedback. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.